It's Thursday, May 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. South America has now become a new epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic. Brazil now has the second most cases of COVID-19 only behind the United States. And President Bolsonaro is still refusing to impose strict measures to curb the spread. Other countries like Peru and Chile are also facing increased numbers. Alex Ward, reporter at Vox and co-host of the Worldly Podcast, joins us for how South America's numbers are going up. Next, as the country is on the road to reopening, many cities are closing the roads to make way for restaurants and people. In order to allow for people to properly social distance, some public roads are being closed to allow restaurants to expand their seating arrangements and provide more space for residents to run, walk, and ride. Mike Laris, transportation reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for how cities are making more room. Finally, the whole reason behind flattening the curve was so that the healthcare system would not be overwhelmed. But as many hospitals prepared for the worst, in some areas, the cases never came. One example is the University of California San Francisco Medical Center, where a whole floor was cleared for COVID-19 cases. Despite the cost, officials don't regret over-preparing. Jim Carlton, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Most of South America's cases are in Brazil, which is part of the reason, if not the reason, why South America has just exploded and having the WHO even say it is now one of the world's epicenters. Joining us now is Alex Ward, reporter at Vox and co-host of the Worldly Podcast. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Happy to be here. I wanted to talk about where the current coronavirus epicenter seems to be. Obviously, the United States has the most cases in the world, but South America is quickly rising with the number of cases they have. Brazil, as a matter of fact, is number two in the world with the largest number of confirmed cases currently. And there's what happened in China, what happened in America. Everybody suspects that it's actually worse than it is because lack of testing, the healthcare systems are being overloaded. So, Alex, tell us a little bit about how South America has become this new coronavirus epicenter. Well, the story somewhat begins and ends with Brazil. Their President Jair Bolsonaro has refused to take on the crisis, calling it a little flu, himself going outside and hanging out with supporters who are protesting lockdowns and promoting hydroxychloroquine as some sort of cure for the disease, although there's no evidence to support that. And in fact, there's a lot to say that it could be dangerous. So while some regional leaders, governors, etc., are trying to fight the disease, that's just not happening, in part because the president is unwilling to put the nation's resources behind solving it. So most of South America's cases are in Brazil, which is part of the reason, if not the reason, why South America has just exploded and having the WHO even say it is now one of the world's epicenters. That said, there are other cases happening elsewhere. But when we're really talking about South America's growth as a coronavirus hotspot, it really is because of Brazil. Peru and Chile are other big countries in South America that are starting to see a lot of cases. But let's focus on Brazil a little bit more first. Have they implemented any type of social distancing measures nationwide? Or, or is it a lot of this stuff just being done on the state and local level? It's really mostly done at the state and local level. I mean, Bolsonaro himself is not really willing to do a national program, let's say. Part of the political crisis that he has started in Brazil is that governors and mayors want to impose lockdowns, and they are imposing lockdowns in some of the biggest 
places in the country, Rio de Janeiro, Sao Paulo, but Bolsonaro doesn't want to do that. So this is leading him to fight with his own political leaders, some of which are in his own party. And for some, and these are experts saying this, there are some experts claiming that Bolsonaro is doing this in part to claim more political power for himself, that he's trying to use the coronavirus to gain more influence in the executive, to minimize the power of other leaders. And that seems to be backfiring because hundreds of thousands are getting infected, tens of thousands are dying, and it's just no end in sight for that crisis. Some of these South American countries are very poor and they're very food poor. There's not enough to go around. So Brazil, Peru, Chile, a lot of people are having to break their quarantines or get out into the public markets, crowded public markets, because they need to buy food. I think it's undoubtedly true that lockdowns and testing and tracing, you know, these are the things that are prescribed and are the best practices you have. But the more you're looking at cases in South America and even parts of Africa, what we're finding is that lockdowns are kind of a rich nation's game. It's really hard for countries that have a high levels of poverty, high levels of people in the informal sector. These are folks that really aren't, aren't on tax rolls. They are musicians or artists or street chefs or whatever it may be. These kinds of folks aren't able to purchase food and store it for long periods of time. They need to go outside for work. They need to go outside to get food to consume day of. And you are seeing example after example in places like Peru and Chile, wherever it could be. I mean, heartbreaking testimony from people where they're saying, I basically have to choose between social distancing or getting food for my family. And some have even said explicitly, like, if I go outside, getting the coronavirus is a possibility. But if I don't go outside and get food, starving is a certainty. And so this is the kind of choice now that people have to make in areas like South America. And it's part of the reason why social distancing and lockdowns and all these other kinds of measures, which have worked with varying degrees of success elsewhere, are just not really working in that part of the world. Interesting statistic from the 2017 census out of Peru. 49% of Peruvian homes don't own a freezer, basically. So you mentioned people having to go out and have to purchase day of food. They have to get their food every day at these local markets. And yeah, they're braving the large crowds to do so in that case. What do we know about the healthcare systems in the South American countries? Because obviously that is one of the big things, getting overloaded, too many patients, not enough support to go around there. What do we know about their healthcare systems? It differs depending on the country, but by and large, it's just not great. You know, there aren't that many ICU beds. Testing and tracing capabilities are minimal. The amount of doctors available for patients are low. And, you know, there are tons of people, as we were saying, poverty is quite widespread in South America. It's hard for people to pay for services. And so there's great inequality in terms of hospitals or medical centers in impoverished areas as they are, while there are some better ones in more urban centers and, and in richer areas. And so this is part of the other problem is that as more people get sick, the ability for people to go get care is just going to be really hard, or even good care is going to be hard. And the other issue here is that South America is now entering its winter, right? Here in the United States, we are heading into summer, but the Southern Hemisphere is heading into winter, and that gets to flu season. And this adds to the bunch of problems that the region already has with certain diseases like dengue, chikungunya, etc. You add flu, and then of course the coronavirus, it's only going to overwhelm already taxed and underfunded and under-resourced medical centers down the line. It just is not looking like a good situation to the point that I have experts telling me they're expecting a major collapse of South America's healthcare systems over the next few months. Alex Ward, reporter at Vox and co-host of the Worldly Podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be here.
the idea is just, can we do anything creative in this sort of awful period to try to help some of these businesses? And also beyond the issue of restaurants, you have people just needing to, to exercise, these officials say. Sidewalks in some places, crowded cities, can be too narrow, sort of cars buzzing by. So they're trying to find ways to address that. Joining us now is Mike Laris, transportation reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Mike. You bet. Nice to talk to you. You know, we're talking about reopening America, getting back to normal, but there's a lot of stuff that won't be normal for a little while. The social distancing will remain with us for quite some time, it seems. And the forced distancing that's required by coronavirus right now is leading to a lot of cities to close some public spaces, some public roads to make room so that residents can walk a little more freely. We can open up bike lanes and especially for restaurants, a lot of People are doing kind of outdoor seating just to help with the distancing and help with the airflow and all that. And some of the cities are closing these roads so that even the restaurants can start moving into those roads with their seating arrangements. Mike, tell us a little bit about what's going on to help reopen the country. It's been really quite interesting. I talked to transportation and city officials around the country for this story, and they basically said that they were trying to do everything they could to help businesses open up, especially restaurants where it was too dangerous to have people packed inside. They said one solution was to sort of help everyone get outside. And that even includes on public streets that have been closed down. That was done in Tampa. In Florida, it's being considered in Washington, D.C. It's being done in other places around the country. And the idea is just, can we do anything creative in this sort of awful period to try to help some of these businesses. And also beyond the issue of restaurants, you have people just needing to to exercise, these officials say. Sidewalks in some places, crowded cities, can be too narrow, sort of cars buzzing by. So they're trying to find ways to address that. What have officials said about some of these proposed ideas? It seems like they are getting a lot of support, at least, to close the roadways and whatnot. Really anything to do to get people out there and get the economy moving again. It's been interesting. I mean, I talked to the folks in Minneapolis and what they were able to sort of cut through some of the bureaucratic problems that usually come up when you're trying to do anything in government. And they were able to stitch together, even in just the city of Minneapolis, 38 miles of protected roadways for walking, for biking, for rolling, for people with disabilities, just trying to find ways to sort of take this awful situation and see if they can't sort of ease people's discomfort. Oakland is a big example of doing this. They have a plan that's called Slow Streets. So they've been closing a lot of the roadways to allow people to get out and move. Tell us a little bit about what they've been doing. The people in Oakland were really early on this. And in talking to some of the cities elsewhere in the country, they've been talking to the people in Oakland. Oakland was able to, so far, close off about 20 miles of neighborhood streets. They call them soft closures. That means they put up a barrier. They say no through traffic, but they let delivery trucks come in. They let people drive back up to their homes. But they just say, this is not a through street. This is not for sort of barreling through and that it's going to be used by more than cars. I mean, the folks in Oakland described seeing parents with young kids on scooters at the same time as a recycling truck, which is pretty hard to imagine. But the officials there said that drivers were taking it incredibly seriously and that parents 
were comfortable in these neighborhoods where they had clear barriers and said this is not for through traffic. Oakland's an interesting case, too, because they got some sort of feedback early on that, hey, this is welcome. They found from surveys, but they found that a lot of the people responding to the surveys were better off and tended to be whiter and from neighborhoods where people earned more money. And so what they did is just on Friday, they kind of rejiggered some of the program so that now they're also trying to target wider thoroughfares to try to slow down traffic so that if someone is walking to the supermarket or some other sort of essential place is what they call it, that the cars will be slower, that people will have more room to walk and that they'd be able to get across streets. So it's a pretty interesting that the people have been saying essentially that they need to be nimble if, if changes like this are to be lasting. All right. You said it there. So the big question is traffic. How are they handling traffic? Because if you're closing streets that were once being widely used, let's say it's going to create backups in other areas. And I know traffic may be a little light right now, but we're already starting to see it pick back up as more people are getting out there. How are they going to handle this part of it? That really does seem like the crucial question. You mentioned part of it, which is that Traffic is down a lot right now. And what the officials say is that in this context of slower than normal traffic, things have been working well. And they seem to be sort of dividing this into a couple pieces. In some neighborhoods, some of the officials I talked to, Oakland and others, say that they hope to be able to continue this for a significant amount of time. In those neighborhoods, the, the contention is essentially that the traffic concerns will be less severe. These are neighborhood streets to begin with, not necessarily the best place for commuters to be cutting through in the first place. At the same time, you have had pushback. You've had people sort of responding that this is some sort of leftist effort to sort of take over the public streets for an ideological purpose. So you're going to have a discussion about what makes sense, especially as you point out, if there are particular neighborhoods where it really starts to jam up traffic. But the officials have been telling me, at least in the conversations I had, was that streets make up, what, 25, 30 percent of a city's real estate. And they're saying that they think that they could successfully balance the use of that real estate more toward people and walking and biking and things like that for the long haul. They think they can do it. It would be interesting to see if they're right. Mike Laris, transportation reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet. Thanks for having me. So UCSF pulled out the stops. I mean, they cleared out an entire floor of their main medical campus in San Francisco, 31 beds. They reopened a facility to take another like 53 COVID cases if necessary. Joining us now is Jim Carlton, reporter for the Wall Street Journal in San Francisco. Thanks for joining us, Jim. How you doing today, Oscar? I'm doing well, thank you. We wanted to talk about the preparation that a lot of hospitals went into to prepare for coronavirus cases. Early on, we were looking at other examples such as China and Italy. Italy especially was just so overwhelmed by COVID-19 and there was legitimate fears here in the United States that that could happen here. So hospitals went into overboard to prepare. A lot of those cases never really bore out. You know, in some hot spots like New York or Louisiana, they did have huge influxes. But in other places, we overprepared and thankfully We didn't need to use all those resources. Jim, you wrote a lot about San Francisco, the University of San Francisco in particular, and their preparations for cases that never really came. Tell us a little bit about that. 
You make a good point that, I mean, I think that this is a case of most of the country kind of overprepared, and there were some exceptions. You know, New York, I think, got overwhelmed, but mostly I think hospitals had the resources. And I'm in San Francisco, so the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF, was one of the key medical institutions that was going to be facing what they thought was going to be an onslaught. I mean, we're on the West Coast, a lot of Chinese here, a lot of Chinese flights. So really the predictions were that San Francisco was going to be overwhelmed. And so UCSF pulled out the stops. I mean, they cleared out an entire floor of their main medical campus in San Francisco, 31 beds. They reopened a facility to take another like 53 COVID cases if necessary. And so they did a lot of other things. And they ended up not getting that many cases, but they're happy that they were ready. And one of the things, obviously, that goes into all of this preparation is there's a high cost for it. Overall, I guess, hospital facilities, this is probably throughout the country, they're expected to lose about $202 billion so far, losses because of canceled surgeries and costs associated with treatment of COVID-19. But a lot of these people, especially there in San Francisco, they're not regretting over-preparing. They're happy that they were able to do it that we didn't need it, and in case of a second wave that could possibly be coming, as some experts have said, that they're at least ready for it still. UCSF, for example, their revenues last year were about $4.5 billion, and they haven't said what the rating is going to be this year, but it's going to be a lot less than that for sure. And I think there's already uh, talk, there's furloughs going on throughout the nation. And that number you mentioned, $202 billion, that was an estimate from the American Hospital Association. And there is going to be a lot of pain in terms of the budgetary red ink. But the alternative, like you had said at the outset, overwhelmed hospitals, people stacked up. I think that they want to make sure that didn't happen. And importantly, we have this possibility of a dreaded second wave. And so if we do get the second wave, places like San Francisco are going to be much better prepared than they would be otherwise. So I think they feel like it definitely is worth it. Tell us about some of the cases that UCSF actually handled. I knew they handled some of their very, very first cases there in the Bay Area. And, uh, you know, officials there really felt like since they weren't overwhelmed, they really were able to kind of get good at it. So when they had a few more, they were already ready to go. So the first case in the country was up in the Seattle area, but the next ones came down here in the Bay Area. And actually, UCSF, they've been doing some emergency planning in late January when it hit Wuhan, China. It was moving to Europe, and then it was headed here next. And like the next weekend, they got a couple from uh, San Benito County with COVID-19, and they were treated. And so UCSF was able to kind of practice. They had a whole floor that was negative pressure for uh, COVID cases, and so they got to put on their full PPE kind of work out the kinks and whatnot. And so they got some practice. The cases started coming in, but San Francisco, overall, we've had like 2,000 cases total in San Francisco since March compared to over 200,000 in New York City. But UCSF has had about 85 cases, including four deaths. I mean, that sounds like a lot. And they weren't no cases, but it wasn't anything like they'd anticipated. They were definitely able to handle this. So where does UCSF stand now? Do they leave that whole floor dedicated to COVID-19 just in case as the time goes by? Are they scaling back? And I am assuming also that they've started to at least do some other elective procedures. Have they begun to do any of that stuff? They have suspended elected and scheduled surgeries for a few weeks, but they've gone back to that now. One interesting thing is food services. I was looking at how do you plan for food services in a hospital cafeteria for a pandemic? And what they had done is that they had just completely retooled that operation. They had lost all of their customers, the visitors. Visitors were prohibited from going in for a long time, and so they had to scale their operations back. But that's starting to come back to normal. There's visitors starting to come back again. So they're kind of slowly letting up on the break and start, you know, return a little bit to normal. But they're still, I think, at the ready, just in case. 
Jim Carlton, reporter for The Wall Street Journal based in San Francisco. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay, thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.